Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for August 15th through 21st, 2022. This is covering Psalms 49 through 51, 61 through 66, 69 through 72, 77 through 78, and 85 through 86. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. Hello, Scriptures. We can't wait to sing you today. You're looking quite musical today. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 47 minutes, 48 seconds. Well, that may sound like a lot, but what would that be daily? Six minutes, 49 seconds. So easy. Now, if you want to read all the Psalms for this segment... This would be Psalms 49 through 101, because we'll start with 102 next lesson. That will take you 2 hours, 3 minutes, 51 seconds, or daily, 17 minutes, 41 seconds, every day for a week. Nice. Well, here we've got time codes, but as you can see with Psalms, we're not quite going through the whole sequential list of Psalms, even the ones that are in the Come Follow Me We're feeling like it's better to maybe spend some time on certain psalms and help to gain some tools so that you can read and enjoy them yourselves. But if you're interested, these time codes can help you navigate the episode. Or, of course, you can just buckle up and we'll talk about them all together. And let's start with Psalm 49. This is an example of a psalm that shows the vanity of our mortal life, but rejoices in the resurrection and acknowledges who makes that possible. Some key verses to look at. Verse 10, For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Skipping to verse 15, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Selah. There's that word, selah. We talked about it in our last lesson. No one is sure what it means, but I think it's instructions to the instrumentalists to play a solo for a little while. Just a thought. Let's take a look now at Psalm 50. Notice that the title of this psalm is A Psalm of Asaph. If you look up Asaph in your Bible dictionary, you'll see that Asaph was a cymbal-playing Levite appointed leader of David's choir. The title would mean that this particular psalm was written by Asaph. He wrote quite a few. Notice the poetic way Asaph describes the second coming. Take a look in verse 3. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that brings us to Psalm 51. Let's spend a little bit of time on this psalm and examine some of the poetry and word usage in the psalm. Remember, when we studied the life of David, imagine how David may have felt about his sins involving Bathsheba and Uriah. His sincere remorse for these sins is recorded in Psalm 51. Although David hath fallen from his exaltation because he had planned the death of Uriah, from Doctrine and Covenants 132-39, he received a promise that his soul would not be left in hell. Here you can reference Psalm 16, 8 through 10. As we read, consider what lessons we can learn about repentance and about the Lord 
from David's pleas for forgiveness. We could look through four different lenses. What do we learn about unrepented sin? What do we learn about repentance? How about forgiveness? And what do we learn about the nature of God? Look for those kinds of insights as we start in Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So, just in these first two verses, what do we learn about God, and what do we learn about forgiveness? David tells us about the nature of God, that he has mercy that David wants to access, that he has loving kindness. It seems to be that word helps describe action based on the motivation of love. Again, he mentions tender mercies and that God has the power to blot out his transgressions, to wash him completely from his iniquities and cleanse him. Let's go on in verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Notice how David understands that even though his sins affected others, it should not be the offenses or shames of the world that motivates him, but how he offended God. Paul told the people of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Very true. From an Enzyme article in October 1989, we have this quote from President Ezra Taft Benson. He says, quote, Godly sorrow is a gift of the Spirit. It is a deep realization that our actions have offended our Father and our God. It is the sharp and keen awareness that our behavior caused the Savior, he who knew no sin, even the greatest of all, to endure agony and suffering. Our sins caused him to bleed at every pore. This very real mental and spiritual anguish is what the scriptures refer to as having a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Such a spirit is the absolute prerequisite for true repentance, end quote. Great insight. Let's go on in verse 5. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Let's pause there a second. Comparing other translations of this verse, it means essentially, I was sinful from my creation or from my beginning. It's a poetic way of describing how David feels about himself. He's going to contrast this with the nature of God. Verse 6, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Now, taking a look at verse 6, this is where it gets fun to look at other translations. Some Hebrew is just really hard to render in English. Look at the various translations and how they try to deal with that verse. The New International Version says, Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So here we have the idea that even though he feels like he's been wicked from the beginning, God has desired him to be faithful from the beginning. 
But the English Standard Version says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Well, that's a completely different understanding of that verse. The idea here is that it's not about the womb or his beginning, but about his inward heart, that his deepest insides need to understand wisdom. And the prestigious Douay Reims Bible says, For behold, thou hast loved truth, the uncertain and hidden things of thy wisdom thou hast made manifest to me. So don't worry if you're reading this and you're not quite sure what it means. Uh, Sometimes the scholars aren't quite sure what it means. (laughs) But I think in essence, what David is saying is that the natural man is sinful and that he recognizes. But God, God desires us to elevate ourselves from the inside. So going on in verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Check footnote A for that verse regarding hyssop. It takes you to Numbers 19.18 and has to do with the law of Moses. It says, And a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it upon the tent and upon all the vessels and upon the persons that were there and upon him that touched a bone or one slain or one dead or a grave. What we're talking about here is those that are ritually unclean because of their actions. Taking the hyssop, dipping it in the water, and sprinkling it is a ritual way to make the person clean. And that's what David is asking for. He's asking for God to ritually make him clean. And he's referring to the law of Moses there. There's some additional interesting symbolism here, since the cleansing that we're referring to with the hyssop has to do with not only people that are unclean, but unclean because they interacted with death represented by the bone or one slain or dead or the grave. This idea that by making him clean, it also makes him alive. This idea of spiritual death, but this desire for God to purge him with hyssop is about being clean, but also about being spiritually alive. Let's take a look in verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. So here we've got a reference to bones again. This may sound a little bit strange, but bones represent, sometimes poetically, your inner self. Make me to hear joy and gladness. That's the result of his purification, his repentance. That the bones, or those things deep inside me, which thou hast broken... Remember this idea of the broken heart, contrite spirit may rejoice because of forgiveness. Verse 9, hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. First of all, this is beautiful. I really love this pleading. It reminds me of what I feel like I should say in my heart when I repent. Verse 10 reminds me of the words of the Lamanite king when he was taught by Aaron in the Book of Mormon. Alma twenty-two fifteen. He said, Yea, what shall I do that I may be born of God, having this wicked spirit rooted out of my breast, and receive his spirit, 
that I may be filled with joy. Have we ever felt that feeling as we humbly come before God to repent? Let's go on in verse 13. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Now, this is interesting because we've run across this already in the life of Saul, the previous king to David. Let's take a look at 1 Samuel 15, 22. It makes that connection in the footnote for verse 16. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. You may recall in this story, Saul took it upon himself to offer burnt offerings that were not for him to do. Samuel emphasizes here that those rituals, although God-given, are not as important as obedience to what God tells us to do. And in the case of Saul, God told him to wait. So David makes this same point. It's not about the rituals. And for us, we might say it's not about going to church or doing your ministering work or fulfilling your calling or whatever the things are that are part of the church structure. Yes, those are important and valuable. But what God wants most of all is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart that we put our will on the altar for God. When we put our will on the altar, that means that our will and our obedience is dedicated to God. We will follow his commandments no matter what they are. That's what God desires of us. And he desires it because it's only through that obedience that we can become like him. So going on in verse 18, Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. And it's nice in his conclusion that he really brings this together. Yes, God gives those commandments for the burnt offerings and the rituals and so forth. But first, our heart has got to be in the right place. And then he is pleased with our service. That's very beautiful imagery. Let's go a little further into the Psalms. Let's skip to Psalm 69. This Psalm is called a Messianic Psalm. There are several of those. It means that the author, David in this case, is prophesying and speaking as if he were the Messiah. First, let's take a look at verse 9. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. Now, you might not think much of this phrase, but it was remembered later by Jesus' disciples. In John chapter 2, when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, John records in verse 17, And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. They remembered this psalm. I like to think they remembered it because it was sung, and they remembered the tune as well as the words, but we don't really know. 
Let's skip down to Psalm 69, verse 20. Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Now, this is particularly meaningful when we think about the Savior's last days in mortality. Handel thought so, too. This was set to a brief piece of music called a recitative. Rather than a song, it's more of a conversational statement set to music. If you'd like to listen to it, we'll include a link in the description. Very nice. Now let's take a look at verse 21. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. I hope this sounds familiar to you. We talked about it last time, but also here we see David prophesying about what will happen to Jesus on the cross. This fulfillment is recorded in all four Gospels. But here's Matthew's account in Matthew 27, 34. They gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. But David ends his psalm on a happy note. Take a look at verses 34 and 35. Let the heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moveth therein. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and have it in possession. It's great to think about what David knows about the nature of God that allows him to sing this praise. What do we know about the nature of God, even when we are in dark times, that can help us to sing a praise like verses 34 and 35? Let's go on to Psalm 72. We actually mentioned this psalm several lessons ago when we talked about King David being near death, giving counsel to his son, Solomon. This was back in 1 Kings 2. Note the title of the psalm, A Psalm for Solomon. Look at the last few verses of this psalm, starting in verse 18. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This seems to mean that this was David's last psalm, a powerful testimony and admonition. Indeed. A brief thought on Psalm 78. This would be an interesting psalm to read given what we've studied so far this year. It's almost a complete summary of the entire book of Exodus. Asaph is poetically taking us through the Exodus story and leading us to the triumphant reign of David. So keep that in mind as you read the psalm and compare it to what you've learned earlier this year. Now I'm going to take a quick deviation from the Come Follow Me assignments. Psalm 81 is particularly interesting to me. I know it's not part of the assignment, but there's a particularly beautiful piece of music that was written to the first four verses of this psalm. An English composer named Adrian Batten wrote this piece in the early 1600s, This was not long after the formation of the Church of England. The song is short, so I thought I'd include it in the show. It's a great example of how the Psalms have inspired composers for centuries. You may notice that although the song is in English, the words don't quite match what we read in Psalm 81. That's because we're reading the King James Version, which was finished in 1611. We don't know the exact year this song was written, but even if it was after 1611, the text was taken from a different translation. 
I haven't figured out which yet, but it most closely resembles the Great Bible of 1539, and it's possible that the composer took a few liberties to help the text fit the music. Now, if you want to know more about these different English translations, we encourage you to tune in to our video, How We Got the Bible. It's a great resource. You're really going to love it. We'll post the lyrics to this song on the screen. If you're curious, this recording is performed by Voices of Ascension, conducted by Dennis Keene. It's from an album called Beyond Chant. I hope you enjoy this. I just love that one so much. It's so pretty. Yeah. They just don't write them like that anymore. No. It just elevates the words. It's praise mixed with so many talents and gifts. Wonderful. Well, let's take a look at Psalm 85. This psalm has an interesting prophetic verse. Take a look at verse 11. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. The Come Follow Me manual invites us to compare this with Moses 7.62. This is the Lord speaking to Enoch. And righteousness will I send down out of heaven, and truth will I send forth out of the earth, to bear testimony of mine only begotten, his resurrection from the dead, yea, and also the resurrection of all men. And righteousness and truth will I cause to sweep the earth as with a flood." to gather out mine elect from the four quarters of the earth, unto a place which I shall prepare, and holy city, that my people may gird up their loins, and be looking forth for the time of my coming. For there shall be my tabernacle, and it shall be called Zion, a new Jerusalem. Now it's interesting to me that certainly the Book of Mormon is truth that sprang out of the earth, but is this the only fulfillment of this prophecy? Or is there more to come? I think it's great imagery to what the Book of Mormon teaches about our faith journey. In like Alma 32, when you plant the seed in the earth and what comes forth out of the ground is a testimony of the truth of that word. And then, of course, it relates it to the increase of faith and so forth. But yeah, there's great imagery there. 
Now, those are the psalms that we wanted to talk about in this lesson. There are other psalms that were not included in the reading that you might want to take a look at as well. For example, Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses. We actually talked about that much earlier in the year. You might also recognize Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Later in the New Testament, Satan actually uses these verses to tempt Jesus after his 40-day fast. The Psalms are beautiful, and as you can see, there are so many of them. The opportunity that we have as we study them is to use some of the tools that we've been sharing and dig into the text. Some of the imagery may be strange, but don't let that stop you. What's the context? What's the idea of what the psalmist is trying to teach us about the nature of God, about the plan of salvation, about his love for his children, his forgiveness, his great mercy, whatever it is? And then how can we relate to that? It's one of the great things of poetry is that it transcends time and can transcend culture. Have we felt the way that we have heard David feel or the other writers? Have we had those experiences? They're fundamentally human and rich. So look for that as you study the Psalms this week. Keep reading your scriptures and we'll look forward to talking to you more about Psalms in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>